I love those words that are just nonsense words that you just use amongst your friends and it's just incredible. And there's so many good nonsense words. There's so many good real words that started out as nonsense words like elbow. Yeah. Yeah. That was just a that was just a a, a throwaway word that Shakespeare threw in there. Well, Shakespeare or, is just like the king of of, you know, English, modern English uh with his slang words. I he he was he was great because he needed to put everything into a, like a rhyme scheme for his plays. And so like you, if you don't have a word that fits in there, you just make one up. You just Seuss it. Although to be fair, I guess Seuss was probably Shakespearing it. Creativity is a curse gifted to many people in many forms. Gifted because it allows for beautiful works of art to come into being, but a curse because its expression is often constrained by the talent of the individual. But what happens when this curse is gifted to one with the means to unify mediums? What happens when the art of the narrative, the art of the audio, and the art of the visual can be married in ways never before seen? What happens when creativity is allowed to explode in all directions? How could an ostrich do ballet? How do you make dinosaurs boring? How could Satan throw a rockin' rager of a dance party and not invite us? And more importantly, I must ask the question, can I go a whole episode without fidgeting with the things on my desk? Hi. My name is Nate Conrad. This is my friend, Abby Rose. In this episode, we cut directly into the creative minds of the Disney employees, as we begin discovering, identifying, and analyzing while dissecting the mouse. I got a made-up word for you. What? It's, this is a word that was made up back in the 40s, it was uh, just completely done off the top of the head to describe something fantastical and amazing and audiovisual. Okay. okay. The word is Fantasia. Wow. I've never heard of that. I ain't never heard of that one before. I mean, you should have. We were doing a talk on it. Oh. Oh, shoot. That was today. I completely Did you forget your forgot. homework? I, um, I ate my dog no i'm just kidding um <laughs> uh, one one i don't have a dog and two, i don't um, know why i wasn't prepared for that <laughs> clearly i wasn't either judging by my tone um okay so anyway fantasia after that lovely lead-in that i completely derailed um but yeah so fantasia it um is a film that was made in 1940, I think. I something sometime around there, and it's it's got quite a bunch of quite a bit of interesting history to it, um, as as does anything in the world. Yes, especially Disney. Yeah, like there's a lot of really weird, interesting Disney stuff. Uh, I found there's too much weird, interesting Disney stuff, and I I tend to talk way too much about it when it's like not the point. Yes. So, 
I'm, well, because there's so many things. Like, it's just, like, that's that's why it's, like, hard each episode here. I mean, we're only three episodes in, but it's hard, especially with things like this, where there's just so much. And, like, you can't, you almost have to cut yourself off from exploring right, like, certain things. And, like, the stuff that's not related, that is related, that's, like, just insane. I think last episode I talked about uh, uh, the woman who invented the grease pencil. Just because yeah. she invented it specifically for um, for for working on Pinocchio. That's, like, that's too much. Yes. It's just a so. lot. Um, okay. But, yeah. So, Fantasia um, is a film... Um, two-hour film made in the 40s by Disney. Um, it's not one cohesive story. It's like eight different little sections split off. Um, most of them are stories, but there's some that's just kind of music-oriented because that's the point of it. it. The point was to, um, correct, me, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of the main point is to make people care about, make kids specifically care about classical music and to make classical music a little bit more fun and enchanting by giving you a visual that is telling a story so that the music can kind of take on a life of its own and have emotion and characterization. I think that it was intended to be a more complete fusion of music and art but I don't think it was specifically geared towards interesting kids in classical music. You know what I mean? But then, like, why wouldn't you say that? Because classical music is the only type of music that's featured in it. I viewed it yeah. more as this is a night at the theater or a night at the, you know, orchestra for kids. But that's just my thing. Like, I think it is meant to be... Obviously, it's a fusion. Obviously, it's a fusion. But I also think that there's a really big focus on music. Okay. I I agree with that. You've swayed me. Thank Yay. But I... But, but, it's conditional. I still don't agree that it's wholeheartedly, specifically for kids. Only because, um, at the time animation was not necessarily specifically a child's medium uh as it is today unfortunately brought about by the disney company um i just i th i think that this was i think it can be for kids but there's no way that you can look at um there's no way that you can look at specifically the rite of spring or the night on bald mountain and Ave Maria combination and say that these are specifically meant to be a way to bring these classical pieces to children. Okay, um, then then maybe it's a way to bring them to the layman, like the average family that wouldn't be oh, able big to epiphany, yes. or want to go to the theater. But it's it's just it's a way of getting people who would not otherwise have had a chance to experience this. It's a way of getting them into this and getting them to understand what's the big fuss about classical music. And yes, 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 yes. You're absolutely right. It's for the it oh my it's for the family. It's for the family. Yeah. Cause like cause like 
I used to do a lot of community theater stuff. Yes, I was a theater kid, if you guys couldn't tell from all my theater references. What? Um, and when I we would do shows for the community theater, a lot of times we would have school shows and um, we would have schools come in that are from like really rural areas and who had never been to like a live production before they've never been to a play before and it's kind of eerie because they're so used to just being in the theater like in a movie theater and watching a movie that after every single number like they didn't clap they didn't do anything even at the very end they didn't clap they seemed really unsure of like how to behave and so it's like that's i think that's kind of what fantasia is doing is like showing you like a like a musical like a play it's showing you kind of this um what's seen as a fine art but in a more accessible way but yeah so this is just a way i i felt like it was a way to bring kind of the fantastical the fantasia of art and music kind of fine arts in general to the family the american family mom and dad and their two and a half kids and the dog spot but yeah, again, as I as I said, like I love how the host Deems Taylor, because um, I initially thought it was a little bit odd or maybe like even kind of annoying that Deems Taylor, the host, described the clips like each of the stories before they happen, like describe what everything that happens in it. But I thought about it, and I actually kind of love it because. Um, of a few reasons because one kids and those with mental disabilities can learn what they're watching and how to interpret it um like everything that's going on so that they don't get confused and so that they like they can keep on track and not get lost in the story and then people as i said with visual impairments they can hear they can know what's going on and hear the music and be able to imagine what's happening even if they're not able to see the animation so, um, that's really cool. That is. It um, is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, um, for me it was a little benign thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, De- I, I like Deems Taylor. He's a good dry personality to introduce something so fantastic. And apparently, like, in, in the time he was like a, a famous movie critic or something. I don't know. I remember reading something about him in hmm. my research research so where do we want to go first i forgot the order that we did last time i think the most important thing that we discussed so far is that fantasia isn't necessarily narrative all the way through and even when it is it's not one particular narrative like you said it's like a musical theater experience yeah as such its characters are kind of everywhere would you care to Give us a quick rundown of the main characters that we see in this. I would love to. Um, but as it stands, like each individual segment is what I usually do, as you know, is I'd like to go in and talk about each of the characters. But if I did that, we'd be here for an hour. Yes. So what I have done is I've constructed a format and I'm going to use this going forward to because I you know me. I go off the deep end and I want to talk about everything all at once. Yes. So much like how I'm keeping my uh, scripts to two pages, 
I am restricting myself to only the top 10 characters. Cool. Okay. Super cool. Now, uh, I should say to begin with, uh, I should say that uh, I did not consider any of the dinosaurs in the Rite of Spring segment to be characters. Uh, They were just like animals. They acted like animals. And that's not to say that animals don't have like a personality that can make them a character. But like that, they they didn't have a personality or a really real story behind it. It was just like animal behavior of animals. It wasn't the land before time. It was more like um, it was more like a nature documentary. Yeah, it was a 22 minute science lesson. Yes. Uh, However, it's because they act like animals and not dramatic characters that I really like that segment and had to give them that shout out. Oh, Lord in heaven. I, I, I love it. It's it's to me. It's interesting to me because I feel like I can put myself into that time and I get to see like into a window of a time where I could not have lived. It's neat. Yeah. But maybe 22 minutes isn't quite as neat as it could be. No, not so, at all. The first character is the orchestra conductor and narrator because I thought of this this unit as one single solitary character. In my opinion, they operate as a face, brain, and body. Uh, Mr. Deems Taylor, the perpetual straight man, acts as the face to us, the audience, and he professionally and courteously introduces these segments. Leopold Stokowski, the brains of the outfit, sternly leads the men and women of the Philadelphia Orchestra who are just goofy and wild enough to be the bits and bobs of a body. They tell the stories. And the stories they tell involve, say, fairies. Svelte and graceful, these ballerina babies seem to bring the change in seasons, from spring to fall to winter. They're responsible for the changes in nature such as dewdrops, falling leaves, frost, and even snowflakes. Suspiciously, they seem to be responsible for nothing that happens in the summertime, like Russian dancing flowers or suspiciously racist mushrooms. (laughs) It's not their fault. Uh, oh boy. Uh, the next character I focused on were the fish. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> shy, demure even, but sultry and flirtatious once you get into their lair, doing the dance of seven veils and whatnot. The dance of seven tails? This, oh, aren't you oh, funny? aren't you <laughs> funny? <laughs> aren't you a, aren't you a card? Mm-hmm. I am, it has indeed. Been, there's been two movies in a row with sexy fish, and I'm not sure what I'm concerned about. Like, I am I concerned about their presence? Am I concerned about the idea that I might be getting into it? If I see another f- sexy fish anytime soon, I think I'm going to lose it, is the main focus here. Yeah. It's, it's right. a lot. There's a, It's such a lot. Like, I, it, we see it twice in Pinocchio, and we see it for a whole segment, a whole mini segment here. Yeah, it's like a constant. I think it's the it's the lips and it's the eyelids cuz fish don't have eyelids that they like they don't have eyelids. So they don't. It just makes them sultry and sexy. Yeah, sassy fish. I I I had this little this is a this is a hey everybody, mini bonus crackpot theory. Um in the lore of who framed Roger Rabbit, I had the idea that one of the fish 
in this film is the grandmother to Jessica Rabbit because they oh, yeah. share eye they share eyelids and lips. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and um we we might also see a, a relative of Jessica Rabbit in the the sexy fish from uh was it Shark Tale or whatever? Oh god, Smith yeah, the Black Angelina the... Jolie fish. Yeah, she looks like uh she looks like Jessica Rabbit. That's her sister. <laughs> that's her that's her cousin. She got more of the Kiss genes. Kiss and cousin. Kiss and cousins. Um, okay, so <laughs> don't. <laughs> uh, right. Instead of instead of wish fulfillment, is it fish fulfillment? I hate this so much. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let um, me move on. Just get me a worse quality mic, and you'll be good because you won't be able to hear me anymore. Yeah, oh, fair. I'll mm-hmm. I'll look into I'll look into Logitech. Oh, that was a a burn that I totally don't even understand because i'm not into mic politics they make um, they make products for computers that are like it, it's like third brand knockoff anyways oh are they that, the ones that have like the red nipple in the center of the keyboard i don't think so the think pads or whatever that's the thing yeah think pads i don't think so my aunt has had like seven of those computers <laughs> just get Can a I? new computer <laughs> Can I talk about the Sorcerer's Apprentice? You don't want to talk more about Sexy Fish? I don't, please. Fine. You can go on. I'm going to lose it. I'm going to I'm going to go out of my mind if I have to hear more about Sexy Fish. Okay. You're going to lose your marbles? I'm going to lose I don't even know if we're keeping <laughs> that bit. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of wish we I hope we don't so that people are just like, "What? Marbles?" Okay. Um anyway, Let's- go on. Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yes. I'm not sure how many times I can say the name of Michael the Mouse before Bob Chapek's law squad decides to try and joylessly (laughs) milk me for all my cash as punishment for attempting to enjoy his company's product. So we're just going to call him by character name. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. We can't even show the uh, the the, um, H2O... Atom era molecular structure of H2O. Yeah, no, we can't show. Yeah, I can't. Like, if you've seen our logo, that's the closest I can get. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is a highly relatable, gifted kid who can do it all but can't be bothered to do the goddamn work and suffers for it in the system. Big dreams, big mistakes, and even bigger regrets, the apprentice is a cheeky little delinquent in a too-big-for-kids robe, with magic on his mind and murder in his heart. (laughs) All right. The soundtrack. So remember how I said there was an orchestra in any capacity? Just throw them out the window. They're here for show. My Man Deems shows us that Conductor Leo and his Philly crew of bangers are just a front for the soundtrack, which is a living being that makes every sound in the movie that isn't a human voice. Also, at time code 1 hour, 11 minutes, and 6 seconds, when the soundtrack finishes up showing off the sounds that a trumpet makes, it also becomes the colors of the trans pride flag. So, you know, soundtracks to Fantasia says trans rights. Yeah. Trans rights. Uh, the centaurs and the centaurettes. <laughs> I love how ridiculously stupid that is. You have to say centaurettes. The in centaurettes. This. Oh my cent- gosh. Oh man. 
Uh, Centauret, for our listeners, is literally a word that does not exist and was made up as an excuse for Fred Moore to design as many pretty naked ladies as he possibly could. (laughs) Meanwhile, centaurs were designed to be total himbo chads. We polled a hundred bronies and they had this to say. This is the ideal body. You may not like it, but this is what peak performance looks like. Also, I will have so much more to say when I discuss production. Oh, God. I'm leaving those two till then. Okay, go on. So let's just move on to Bacchus. Fred Moore's self-insert so he could be forever (laughs) immortalized as getting sauced and chasing ladies. Rider of the greatest looking unicorn I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Tormented by his father, Zeus, king of all jerkwads, even when he's not philandering, and his own brother, Hephaestus, who's got the face of one of those there's something wrong with characters we've come to recognize. But he's got the body of Disney's Huncules. I was like an inch away from taking a drink of water. I'm so glad that I didn't. I'm just saying, when women it's look that- at dope when women look at dopey, they see Hephaestus. They see <laughs> to, to be fair, we never see under Dopey's, uh, <laughs> Dopey's loose. Oh my god, yeah, I heard Dopey had an eight pack. I heard he was shredded. <laughs> it's, that, it's that one tooth, that one tooth that they all share. And the, the, the eyes that aren't quite crossed, but aren't quite not. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't put it. I don't. To, I don't want to put a name to it. But there's something wrong with Hephaestus, and he's shredded. <laughs> oh, oh man, I've gosh. got three more characters. Okay. I'm almost done. I pro- please God, please, please go <clears throat> on. The hippos, not so svelte, but just as graceful as the fairies. These sumptuous and Rubenesque benches eat some grapes. Do a number of dance numbers to rep the noonday sun, then take a nap. You know, live in the life. They, and the dancing ostrich and elephants that come out before and after them, are eventually pursued by, drumroll please, the crocodiles! I have written daring crocs of mystery, champions of the night. Swoop down from the shadows, crocodiles own the night. Somewhere, some dancing animals are just trying to live their life, but their number's up. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who's going to get that. That was a Darkwing Duck reference. Yeah. Because they're all like. Completely didn't. I thought that this was just turning into a really different podcast. You you thought I was just turning into. You thought I was just trying to make a beat poem. Yeah. I was. I mean, I I was here for it. I was in support of you. Please don't do that. Oh, you don't like my poetry now? I just, I don't really like poetry in general. I don't know. That's fair. Yeah. Just can't get into it. So, one last thing. I'm not sure if they're horny or hungry, but if certain (gasps) corners of the internet and certain Griffin McElroy fans have taught me anything, it can be both. (laughs) I literally say the exact same thing. (laughs) Sans the uh, Griffin reference, but I, wow. Wow. Incredible. Amazing. Love it. Are you ready for the last character in the top ten? Oh, yes, I am ready. By the way, this is in no particular order. Actually, it is in a particular order. I put them in order of their appearance. Okay. But I say I did save number one for last. 
Okay. Chernobog! Oh. Dude. Every kielbasa-eating, pierogi-stuffed, Slavic-raised cell in my body is screaming for me to talk about the Chernobog. Top boss, big badass, commander of the forces of darkness, big goth zaddy. Zaddy. Decided he hates bells for some reason. I literally own like seven Disney pins with this guy's face on him. <laughs> I have always loved the Chernobog. He's the best Disney villain ever. Yeah, he is the best Disney villain ever. Really He's the like best him. we've seen so far. That's true. Oh, like with us with the podcast, or like I'd say I'd say the best we've seen so far in the podcast, but also the best I've seen so far in any piece of Disney media. Nothing yeah. beats literal Satan. <laughs> well, and like to be fair too, there's best is really relative, and it can mean anything. Like there's best villain in terms of like they're the most villainous and the most heinous mm -hmm. which i feel like that would go to either what's his face from hunchback or um mother gothel from Ooh, rapunzel frollo's a nasty boy and Frollo, mother yeah. gothel mother gothel's a nasty woman but yeah but um and then there's also but, best like best like our favorite or the coolest design you know so it's like it's there's a lot that you can say with best, but I think he's right. maybe the most sublime. Um, sublime. Yeah. So sub the sublime is a thing in Gothic literature where it's not, it's kind of the opposite of beautiful where it's like, it's kind of like, gr it's, it's grandiose. It's big. It's very obscure. It's very extreme. And it's like, awe-inspiring, but, like, not in a beautiful way. It's the antonym to beautiful. Yeah, where but it, but it can also be, like, striking and, like, positive without necessarily being, like, beautiful is seen as more soft and passive and a little bit more feminine and non-threatening. Sublime can also be seen as, like, we, we could see it as beautiful, but it's more fearsome. So he's more, he's the most, like, sublime villain, Chernobog is. Like, he's Ooh. the most, like, awe-inspiring and fear-inspiring in terms of, like, his, just his size and, like, the, the aura around him. I mean, considering he's literal Satan, that's, like, on brand, but still. Yeah, like, he's, de he's described literally by Deems Taylor as Lucifer. Yeah. Like, it's just Satan. Yeah. <laughs> it's Satan. Um <laughs> So, yeah. Hey, old Satan. No, that's the that's the that's the joke from last time. Yeah. Um. Okay. So that was good. That was a good. I liked those characters, and I liked that. It's so hard to. I cannot stress this enough. How difficult it is to do an episode on this because it's not just one story, and not even all the elements are stories. They're like framed stories some of them aren't even narrative some of them aren't even like you know like yeah. right of spring is not even like a there's no conflict it's just things happen you know right exactly like it's it's a documentary it's just like a visual documentary yeah um but so yeah i 
And you had you had source material and story. Like I am so sorry. Oh no, it's okay. So I kind of dropped off the map with source material because there's so many things. Like there's as I said, there's eight shorts, um, or like eight like shorter, I guess, um, sections of it, and then only six of them are narrative or like stories. Um, and so I chose not to do source material on like pretty much any of them because he already deems taylor kind of describes them each one in the beginning um and so there's not really much i could do other than say yeah what he said um for instance with the pastoral symphony which i'm going to talk about it's like greek mythology and it's like i don't want to get into greek mythology right now because they really don't even get into it and it's not even accurate so it's like I can't even, like, what am I going to get into Greek mythology and get into, like, Scottish mythology with unicorns and then also get into, you know, like, there's not much I can do without diving too much into things. So, but I... I I do want to say that this is the most accurate uh, Disney has ever portrayed Zeus. That's true. Yeah, without having him philandering. Yes, I was surprised he didn't reach down and snatch up one of the centaurettes. Yeah, no. Those are exclusively for totally not Fred Moore. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so as we've said before with Fantasia, um, it's two-hour-long musical program that they did in the 40s. The frame story of this um, is the host, Deems Taylor, and the orchestra conducted by Leo Stokowski. Um it was, as I said, a little hard to do an outline for this one because it's split up into eight main parts with an intermission in the middle. And technically, only six of them are actual stories. Uh, now, it starts with Toccata and Fugue in D minor, which is a Bach composition, and shows live shots of the orchestra for the first half, which is actually really cool because it goes to each of the instruments or the groups of instruments as they're being highlighted in the song itself. And it lights them up with really cool different types of colors. Like I would love, I would have loved for that to be the entire thing. Like I just want a two hour concert of just seeing all the musicians doing their thing and being lit up by different colors. And usually the colors will correspond with the type of emotion you want. Like the flutes will be kind of like a, like a whitish color and and the bassoons will be a deeper, more purpley color. Like it's, it's really awesome. Um, but about halfway through, it switches into some weird abstract animation that I think Nate might talk about later. He um, but basically, the rest of the song, it just looks like a bunch of clouds, pretty much, and like things happening in the clouds. So... After Toccata and Fugue, we move to Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, which is really just a bunch of little songs one after the other. Nate, I think you commented that it was like a little mini Fantasia in itself, because um, it's yes, not just yes, one song. Yes, I, I thought it was like Fantasia itself is like segment, 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 but like the second segment is sub-segment, 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 sub-segment. Exactly. So it's like, whereas Toccata and Fugue or like um, Rite of Spring is one composition that maybe has different movements, but it's clearly the same thing. 
um, Nutcracker Suite, the songs literally are different and there's nothing that carries over. There's no like musical style that carries over because it's not meant to because each one is supposed to be from different like it's supposed to be different songs because they're supposed to be different like you know, sweet treats or whatever that they're bringing out for the kids. Different in the acts in the suite. ballet. Yeah, which I actually thought it was really funny because uh, Debs Taylor said in the beginning of the Nutcracker Suite, the Nutcracker Ballet itself, you know, isn't too popular nowadays, but the suite <laughs> is very popular. And I was really confused for a moment because because I was like, no, that's ridiculously popular. Are you kidding? Until I realized oh, yeah, this happened in, like, 1940. I'm sure this was before it was repopularized. Do you think this is what repopularized it? I was wondering that. It might be. It might be. Real talk, by the way. Um, I think I can maybe answer that because I'm having, like, a, a a flashback. Might also be Barbie Nutcracker. <laughs> it, it was probably Barbie and the Nutcracker. That's that's a, That's a level of cultural impact that Disney can only aspire to. Yeah, that's true. Freaking Barbie. Um, or or the uh, the Nutcracker with, uh, I think it was Macaulay Culkin who starred in this. It was like a live showing of the Nutcracker. Um, really? Yeah, when he's a little boy. It's really cute. Interesting. Yeah. Nev- I'd, I'd have to look into that. I had the VHS and I would put it into my little TV. Remember when you had like those little tiny box TVs where um, the screen was like really small and you would have oh, the VHS. Oh, it's got a VHS player right yeah. in Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, so. But yeah, I was going to say, um, first grade, I was on stage. Uh, I was also a theater kid. Yes. Um, this was, this doesn't count. Like I was a theater kid later in life, but this was compulsory. Uh, everyone in the class had to do it. We did a production of the Nutcracker and Aww. everybody had their own little jobs. Did you play the, um, the Mouse King? <laughs> I played a mushroom. Aww. My job was to walk from the back of the stage, uh, come to the front of the stage, bounce around and bow, and then back up, bounce around and bow, uh, like, four times. So it was it was influenced by Fantasia, because that was never part of the original. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I'm... That, because it, it its revival must have been, like, you know, Fantasia-based. Yeah. For, for context, everyone... Um, which I'm going to get into in the Nutcracker Suite in Fantasia, um, the song that is supposed to be, I think it's the Green Tea from China. They, there are um, dancers in like traditional, like, not traditional, <laughs> um, stereotypical maybe like Chinese clothing. Um, that dance. They got in, them in the big hats. Yeah, and like the yeah in the Nutcracker Suite, but then in this in Fantasia, they're little mushroom men with little conical hats. Um, so anyway, yeah. So um, so yeah. Now we move into Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, which is really just a bunch of little songs. Um, so we start out with some adorable fairies leaving dew on the plants in springtime along with some mushroom men moving and flowers grooving. I love those flowers. Yeah, I do too. Um, And then we have a sexy goldfish dance in summertime. Then golden autumnal fairies and the waltzing leaves for autumn. And finally winter with frost fairies and snowflake ballerinas. It's honestly delightful and super relaxing to watch all of this. 
even uh, the even the even the flowers like when they're yeah. like jumping and dancing it's the wildest part like that's still yeah. that's still very tranquil to watch and it's awesome because the animation of itself in itself is so simplistic it's only the barest suggestion of motion and like the flowers don't need hands they don't need faces they don't need expressions you kind of get who they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be it's it's very like minimal movement but it's really effective i think um the animators had a lot of fun with it i think it was it was really absolutely cool. um so after that uh, after nutcracker suite there's the sorcerer's apprentice by composer paul ducas where we see mickey as a wizard's intern who gets lazy and bespells a broom to do his chores for him resulting in near drowning and hopefully no class credit because come on dude you literally had one job <laughs> I mean, he's like an unpaid intern, pretty much. Um, okay, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the Rite of Spring comes next, and I really wish I had more enthusiasm, but it's literally a 20-minute science lesson set to Stravinsky's dissonant Russian soul. Seriously, what is it with Russians and those chords? I mean, it, it gives you that <laughs> feeling of reaching the bottom of a staircase and not realizing you still have one step left and then feeling like your heart is going to slingshot through your sternum while you free fall for like a millisecond. It's that for just like 20 minutes. Um, (laughs) So anyway, this is basically evolution, starting with spicy volcanic earth and aquatic bacteria sex that probably awakened a hunger in (laughs) six-year-old Will Wright that led to his weird protozoan sex game, uh, which is Spore for those who don't know about it. It's a video game. Uh, so 22 minutes later, <laughs> are you okay? No. <laughs> uh, I'm Will Wright, and this is my weird protozoan sex game. Um, okay. Yeah, Spore, it's literally a video game. It's it's E for everyone, I think, but it's a video game where you get to play as bacteria, and you get to have sex with bacteria who are like you, and then you evolve into bigger bacteria, and then eventually you go up onto land, and then, again, you have sex with others of your kind and evolve and kill and eat other species and it's just real yeah real talk you can also use that same descriptor to describe viva pinata oh it just has more colors (laughs) (laughs) it really does and it's it's less wet that's funny that's funny but yeah can you imagine like a six-year-old will wright watching Fantasia and it's just just experiencing an awakening within just himself. Hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. It does. <laughs> Money, hope creativity. That, hope this doesn't evolve anything in me. Um, <laughs> okay, so twenty two minutes later, the story ends on a grand flatulent whimper, leaving the viewer bored, sleepy, and deeply traumatized from watching dinosaurs die from heat exhaustion, thirst, and being stuck in the mud in a troubling scene that calls to mind the tragic death of Artax in Never Ending Story. Let's have a moment Oof. of silence for that poor horse. Um, anyway, we never got to see the meteor. Zero. I gotta say, big oof. Big oof. First of all, I don't think they knew about the meteor at the time. Really? Yeah, like they because Deems Taylor says how it how they lost how they were lost. Well, no one knows, and this was like the forties, huh. man. Oh yeah, I guess I guess it is like the forties, man. But yeah, I was disappointed because I expected to see the meteor and i know i never saw the meteor which by the way speaking of the meteor so with the age of the dinosaurs here um in like the middle so the right of spring the middle of it is just dinosaurs um it's all just turf wars from petty ass clicks that roam the air then get eaten the sea 
then get eaten, and the land, and that then get killed by a meteor. Uh, which is weird considering the Earth is flat. I mean, shouldn't the meteor have flung the dinosaurs into space on impact? NASA, give us the facts. Release the forbidden space dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> that's a Monty that's a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Just, just not literally, but it sounds it like it. It sounds one. like it. The Forbidden Space Dinosaurs. Um also whenever the T Rex came on, I was like, oh god. I will say this. Tyrannosaurus Rex looked the worst out of all the dinosaurs. He did. He was he was not he was not represented properly. So, okay, let's let's move on from the Rite of Spring. It's, like, traumatizing and deeply troubling, but also really boring. So it's just the worst out of all of it. Just do yourself a favor and just skip it. Just skip it. I'm sorry. Just skip it. Nothing happens. Just dinosaurs being dinosaurs and then dying of thirst and hunger and sadness, I guess. I don't know. So... This hurts. This hurts. It... I mean... It hurt them, too, I guess. So, right before the intermission, the host introduces the soundtrack, a thin little rod that's animated to change with every new instrument it mimics. It's honestly super cute and a great way to show kids how to view certain musical sounds, because, like, certain, like, bassoons and, like, bass and really kind of deep, throaty instruments the the animation that you see related to that is more rounded, kind of thicker, and then the the hi hat and like the flute and stuff um, is a sharper sort of visual. So it's kind of cool in in visual. The triangle is shaped like a triangle. Mm. Um, okay. So after intermission, we see the Pastoral <coughs> Symphony by Beethoven, a sort of Greek mythological story that shows different groups frolicking and doing their thing. We have unicorns, pegasi, satyrs, and cherubs, and centaurs that just kind of go on with their days. Uh, oh, excuse me. I forgot the centaurettes. Yeah. yeah the female, you can't forget the centaurettes. <laughs> the female centaurs are specifically called centaurettes. Because, you, know, <laughs> you know, they're the girl ones. You get it? Um, anyway, Bacchus, the feasting god, arrives in all his jolly glory, and they have a party that's promptly ruined by Zeus being, as usual, the biggest asshole. Uh, the story ends with Iris giving everyone a taste of the rainbow and then Diana bringing on the night. <laughs> uh, Dance of the Hours by Ponchiele, Ponchiele, whatever, um, is an adorable ballet of morning, afternoon, and evening ballerinas. Ostriches dance through the morning hours, then lead into the hippopotamus noon dancers and the prima ballerina, who decides to take a nap just as the evening dancers, who are elephants, blow themselves tutus made of bubbles, and dance us into dusk. That's when some presumably male alligators show up, led by their leader, who is either extremely hungry or extremely horny for the prima ballerina. Maybe both. Ah, same love, hat! Lo- love works in mysterious ways. Same hat. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the last number is a combo of Nut on Bald Mountain by Mussorgsky, freaking Russians, man, and Ave Maria by Schubert. It's really not love them Russians. Love them Russians and that dissonance. Uh, it's really not anything too complex or interesting. It's just Satan and his pals throwing a bonfire rager up on the mountain and then scattering at dawn when I guess God files a noise complaint. I don't know. All I know you is you can't that- say you can't <laughs> say that it's nothing interesting and say that it's Satan throwing a rager on the mountain. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's just Satan doing Satan stuff. Um, all I know is that I can guarantee you the last five minutes of this will put you to sleep. If you can watch the whole thing without yawning once, I will personally make and give you a medal. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's it. Just look up the individual clips on YouTube and save yourself the two hours of suffering. I mean, you're absolutely right about that. Like, uh, Ave Maria is the Ave Maria segment is just it's it's so slow. It's so well because uh, dis like I looked on the Wikipedia. Um, Donate to Wikipedia, by the way, everyone. And I looked. Donate to Wikipedia. Wikipedia sponsors us. Sponsors us with what money? Um, they're the ones that need sponsoring. So um, we're going to donate to Wikipedia for every two hundred listeners we have. Are we? That's a okay. I guess that's a claim. I'm not. I'm not signing a contract, but I can say whatever I want. We can say whatever I want. Um, I'm purple. Deems Taylor was the inspiration for Chernabog. Um. We can say whatever the hell we want. So anyway, um, but, oh God, I was going to say something that I didn't. Oh yeah. So I was looking on the Wikipedia and uh, I think I read there that the last one, the, the Ave Maria, that like animation, like area, that, that, that section of animation was specifically because Disney wanted to accentuate and kind of show off all the background painters and like all the background painting and and um kind of show what a good job they do and like okay that's sweet yeah it is really sweet but it's boring as all get out like it's so boring oh my gosh it's so boring i i think i literally fell asleep when we watched it i think i was keeping you awake yeah yeah i could feel my eyes just crossing and i was like oh I know that my mom and dad fell asleep during that bit. Yeah. Well, and then and then you were like, oh, that's cool. Because there's a line of, of hooded figures going into the forest, the sunlit forest. And you said, oh, that's really cool. They're druids. I'm like, no, they're they're monks. Like, this is literally Ave Maria. <laughs> like, I wish they were druids. That would be interesting if they were druids. Listen, but... I'm, I'm a wrestling fan. I know who the Undertaker is. I see a dude in a robe. I think druid. Yeah, as you should. Okay. Um, so that's all I have for my outline. It's a little bit convoluted and a little bit long, but that's really Fantasia. So (laughs) it's just a little convoluted and it's a little long. A little bit. It's, it sure is something. It sure is something else entirely. And it's production, as usual, sure is something else entirely. Yep. Oh, I do, Um, do tell. So let's begin way before the beginning with Walt Disney's classic black and white short, The Skeleton Dance. Not much to say, it's exactly what it sounds like. Skeletons pop out of a graveyard and begin merrymaking set to music. This fantastic scene stuck in the mind of old Uncle Walt, and he had a vague vision of what he described uh, where sheer fantasy unfolds to a musical pattern. Uh, that's a, that's a, I pulled that quote from his autobiography, not his autobiography, his biography. He, I don't think he had an autobiography. Anyways, this idea is realized in plenty of ways during his career, but isn't quite peaked so hard as in 1937, when he happens to meet famed orchestral conductor of the day, Leopold Stokowski, dining alone in a restaurant. The pair had met previously in 1934, but it was over this meal, which they began to eat together, that Leo shared with him the brilliant idea of wanting to do a short based on the classic composition L'Apprenti Saucier. Uh, This, Walt agreed, could be a grand idea, 
And so he began his work on this as a short, a deluxe short, he called it. It was so deluxe that the budget ran to the tune of, uh, you want to take a guess? Um, let's say $50,000. You want to take another guess? Up or down? Up. $75,000. You want me to tell you? Yes, please. $125,000. His brother, Roy Disney, who handled the finances, informed him that this short would never make back its budget as a short. So Walt, told that the budget is impossible, decides to say, yeah, sure, okay, let's just do it as part of a movie then. We're going to do like seven or eight deluxe shorts and call that a feature-length film. Wow. And that's another direct quote from the the biography. Wow. He said that after... Yeah, he said that he hit a fat blunt. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just hide your your passion project in with a bunch of other fillers, and yeah, you're good. Just just do just tell your animators you can do whatever as long as Leopold Stokowski can conduct it. Yeah, and creativity explodes in all directions. Yeah. Um, but in the planning stage, he just called it the concert feature, uh, as each segment would be a song rather than a skit. Um, he also had the genius idea that sound would sound much better if it sounded like you were actually there in the middle of the room. This conception led to a revolutionary idea. What if speakers, but three of them with, wait for it, different sound coming out of each of them. It was dubbed Fantasound. (laughs) We know it today as stereo instead of mono, and it literally had to be installed wherever the show played, Whoa. adding to the expense. Yeah. Uh, so let's fast forward a little bit and talk about an animator. One of my favorite animators, one of the wildest, bonkers, most off-the-wall animators ever of all time. You know him. I love him. I've said his name like five times now. Mr. Fred Moore. Yay! Uh, I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna fake me out and and say Art Babbitt, and I was about to no, be really mad at God you. God no, no, I'm saving the best for last. <laughs> oh God, okay. Um, I'm not gonna sit here and pretend Fred Moore didn't have his problems. I'm gonna lay down just a little bit of raw truth about him, starting with the fact that to this day it is a mystery as to how Fred Moore came to work at the Disney Animation Studios. He had no formal training or education in animation. Some say that a friend of his showed his art to Walt, who loved it so much that he hired him on the spot. Others say, and this is my favorite, favorite legitimate theory that people have, that Fred just walked through the door one day, sat down at a desk, and cracked into it. <laughs> what? <laughs> Whatever the case, it was this lack of formal training that played to his strength, as he never learned the shortcuts and easy ways out in the animation world. So he just put in the work twice as hard as anyone else, and did art that was geniusly expressive. He also had a penchant... Penchant? Penchant? Penchant. Is that the word? Penchant. He had a penchant, yeah, for drawing naked girls. Oh, no. Just just for no reason, all the time. Do we have him to thank for the centaurettes? We do! (gasps) He designed the centaurettes. Oh, no. And that means he drew them with nipples. That's a no-no, Freddy. Oh, that was just Fred. He liked to... He liked to get drunk at work and draw naked girls. Oh, I forgot to mention he was drunk at work all the time and was described by his friends his friends as a functioning alcoholic. 
in the wild man 40s absolutely insane. in the 40s and like the this 30s. is the 40s that's you that's, that's like what we were saying like the relativity of like if you're like racist for your time it's like if you're drunk for the 40s <laughs> oh you're pretty drunk you your liver has been pickled before you're 40 yeah it's the 40s man it's the 40s um, man and he was so good at drawing naked girls, like you said, like you predicted, he created the centaurettes. I love I love Just, that there's a metric for that. Man, you're really good at drawing naked girls. Thanks. I've been working really hard on it. That, you know that how, was his you know that was his was? passion that was his passion project, but like the wrong kind of passion. Um what were you gonna say? Yeah, how he's he was so good that when they moved from Hyperion Studios, when Disney when the Disney company moved from Hyperion Avenue to the studio custom made in Burbank Mm -hmm. in a section known as the penthouse club where Walt Disney would take his um, favorite animators and let them hang out. Am I not going to like this? He had Fred Moore do a mural and that mural was a caricature of himself drunk and fat and happy surrounded by pretty naked girls. So Bacchus. Yeah. He, I, I said it literally, oh. Fred Moore. Bacchus is just Fred Moore's in- insert. Oh, I'm going to look that up. <clears throat> mural. So I'm going to take Fred Moore and his pretty mural and yeah. the centaurettes. Yeah. And I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to get in deep. Oh, boy. On Disney Plus. I'm looking at the mural right now, and this is... It sure is something, isn't it? I certainly don't care for it. I don't care yeah. for the fact that he looks all caricature and like silly and goofy and like and um like approachable and and you know, like a silly nice, you know, drawing and then all the yeah. women around him and all the girls are like more realistically just drawn. Nude. That's unsettling to me. He's a cartoon man in a in a it's it's the opposite of what um sad depressing anime fans want. Yeah. They want to be real men with a with a creepy creepily drawn cartoon woman. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's weird. That's weird. Huh. All right, so Okay, anyway, that <laughs> I went away for a second. You you went away and you you had to see the you had to see you had to see it for yourself. I had to make the connection and ruminate over it for a second before my brain would you let me come back. You had to understand what was going on. Yeah, and I still don't quite understand, but I'm ready to move on. Good. Good. We we need to move away from Fred Moore because uh he's he only ever did one thing that I really genuinely truly loved and that was fall out of a window. <laughs> Like to his death? No, he he fell. This is uh this is a this is a story that I cut. Um, this is a story that I cut from the third po- first podcast when I was going to go deep into the uh, rap party for Snow White. Mm-hmm. But at the rap party for Snow White, everybody got super fucking drunk, <laughs> and Fred Moore he got super double drunk. Like if if he, everybody he got else was getting drunk. <laughs> He got beyond alcoholic drunk. He got so drunk that he fell out of a second story window at the hotel they were staying at. Oh my god. And landed in a flower bed. Wow. 
Famously, wow. uh, people looked down and looked over at him and said, Fred, Fred, are you all right? And his only response was, of course, I didn't spill a drop. And he holds up his beer. <laughs> that man is Champion. a Looney Tunes character. He was, that. that's his, that's his backstory. I have a crackpot theory for Fred Moore. That's his backstory. He didn't exist before then. He actually is a product of an animator. Like he was brought to life. He's like a, like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit uh, type oh, guy. I like this crackpot theory. Because he can fall out of a freaking two-story window and he can drink like a fish and be fine. What a tune. He was just kind of like that weird, like, uncle whose hands are always kind of, like, warm and, like, like sticky. And he, like, hugs you and you're like, eh. He, he never does like He never does anything bad, but he's just kind of like, Ugh. He just makes the jokes that make you go, uh, gross. You ready to be grossed out for, like, an entirely different reason? Yes. Okay, yes. I was like, so, uh. <laughs> I'm going to use the centaurettes. As a jumping off point to get deep into the centaurettes. Oh, into... <clears throat> oh, are you going to talk about sunflower? Because um, I also have a thing about sunflower. Oh, yeah. I'm going to... I First of all, I have to say, on Disney+, Plus, when you go to watch Fantasia, you are shown a message that says something to the tune of, this program is presented as it was originally created. It may contain outdated cultural depictions. This is, of course, half a lie. Yeah. True. It does contain an offensive, outdated cultural depiction, the mushrooms, but that's what they kept in. Yeah. In 1969, Fantasia was edited to remove certain offensive scenes and characters. This was a process that involved cropping certain areas and repeating a key segment of footage, as well as completely obliterating one of the characters from a scene that simply could not be cut or cropped. The offensive characters that were taken out, there were two of them, actually, were named Okita and Sunflower. And, hmm, there's no gentle way to say this. They were Jim Crow centaurettes. They look really bad. I can't describe how yeah. bad they look. If you have to know what they looked like, you know, I said the names, and you can find them, but y you don't really have to know what they looked like. Okay, so I'm gonna, so because I also did a little bit of thinking and looking and thinking about Sunflower, and um, a few things really don't sit right with me. Okay, so first of all, I have to acknowledge, yes, of course, this was in the 40s or whatever. It's still not okay. It's you can justify, oh, well, it's still Jim Crow, whatever. But and I know that we were saying before that we are, you know, not going to fixate too much on problematic elements. But this is not even just like this isn't a group of mushrooms with like conical hats. This is like, yeah, this isn't vague. This is overt. this is an insult and it is an atrocity. But looking at it. Kind of looking at it from a more analytical standpoint, another thing that is seemingly innocuous but is really big is that um, Sunflower. I don't know about – you said the other character's name was Okita? Yes. Okita. Um, I don't know about Okita, but Sunflower, the way that she was depicted, she had – she was a centaur – centaurette, I guess – but she, her body was not a horse's body. It was a, specifically a donkey's body. So even 
though she is a centaurette, she still wasn't the same, literally wasn't the same being. You see, when I saw her, when I, when I, and the only reason I saw her is because, like, I felt like I had to look it up to be able to critique it. Uh, I, I had just assumed, like, oh, she's smaller because she's younger. No, it's and specifically a donkey. No, specifically a donkey. Oh, God. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because in the version we watched, there are still racist characters presented. And I'm not talking about the mushrooms. I'm talking about the two attendants of Bacchus. They were two women of color in clearly racialized costume. They're they're wearing, like, bra-type things, but they have clear nipples, so it's overtly sexualized. The way that they're adorned is very suggestive sexually and of, like a racialized nature and they like sunflower are centaurs but not horse centaurs they are zebras their bodies are zebras and the reason why i want to point that out is because these are supposed to be like magical creatures these are supposed to be creatures that are not humans none of these creatures are humans the centaurs and centaurettes they look like humans they're not supposed to be humans but even still you still have this sense of there's the the centaurs and centaurettes that are the horses which are the ones that lounge around and are the ideals and are kind of living their lives and having boyfriend girlfriend moments and being fawned over by the cherubs and then you have these three other or I guess four other I I haven't looked into like Okita, but um a lot of people like say that Okita and Sunflower are kind of interchangeable. Um it's it's say it, it's safe to say that um it could be a flaw in design. Okay. Um but yeah, so the point is so that you have this handful of other clearly racialized centaurs that are not horse centaurs they are exoticized and sexualized like with the zebra or they are sort of made to be kind of crude beasts of burden like with the donkey um body which sunflower is also sort of a servant to the let's just call them the white centaurs i mean come on there's some that are like blue and green and yellow whatever they're they're meant to be white they're eurocentric so um i just wanted to point that out of like it wasn't it's not just the clearly caricature racist depiction of like sunflower and of these other characters it's the fact that even categorically as a fictional being they're not even in the same category of centaur and the two attendants to Bacchus are not even like they they are working under this other individual and so it's just so awful like it's insidious it's insidious it's just like and that's what like it makes me so mad that the pastoral symphony and 
to a certain extent, the Nutcracker Suite have such cute and creative elements with such gorgeous animation, but then suddenly you get gut-punched by a racist character or a problematic situation, more often both. And it's not even, like, small things. I'm not even trying to be, like, PC or whatever. It's not, like, just Dopey being Dopey or Hephaestus being Dopey, you know? It's, like, (laughs) it's specifically, like, the dark-skinned zebra centaurs with nipples and super suggestive behavior, or the mushrooms with slits for eyes and thin braids that bow and scurry around. Like, it sours my enjoyment of these old movies, because now I'm just thinking, oh, God, what's next? I have this dread of, like, I, I'm afraid to enjoy this thing and open my enjoyment of it and view it with happiness and vulnerability, because then something's gonna happen, and... It's just going to shock me, you know? So. I can understand that. <sighs> Sorry, um, I didn't mean to make things so heavy, but, like, that's just... It's... Yeah. It's like, why why would you take the time to remove freaking, like, Sunflower and all that if you're not going to remove the other two centaur zebras? And if you're not going to remove the, like... I, um, I think it might be because, like... Maybe the people scrubbing didn't realize that a zebra is not a horse. Uh, I don't want to get into racial discussion. Okay, so things, whenever you have a, a like a white, like Anglo-centric um, creator and they're focusing on a non-white culture or a non-white individual or the concept of like non-whiteness, pretty much two main things happen. There is a um, an exoticizing or there is a, I don't know what the, the name is, but it's like making it seem like threatening kind of. Even though zebras and horses are a lot more similar than donkeys and horses may be, like on the scale of like zebras are not beasts of burden necessarily like donkeys are, but a zebra is still an exoticized version and it's still painted as the quote other. Um, and the quote other is a big thing in a lot of theory, though it is outdated. People aren't using the word other anymore because it's come under a lot of fire. I'm not going to get into that. But even though zebra isn't necessarily a bad thing, the idea or the concept that they had to categorize that as different and more exotic than the regular horse, that is the problem. Um, yeah, like treating it like a different species. Like a different species, yeah. So it doesn't matter if a zebra is, you know, similar genetically to a horse. Visually, it's completely different. And geographically, it's also completely different. But, yeah, that's the thing. And it's not like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get more into it yeah this all it's just this gonna, all got heavy we're not gonna talk about that anymore okay what's next <laughs> we're getting too heavy we're getting, we're getting too, too heavy, heavy. this is this is getting too close to my wheelhouse and so i can't we need to pull out let's 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 get back into a light-hearted frame of mind okie doke abby mm-hmm. let's talk about the rite of spring uh, oh god this that's is a... neither jolly nor light-hearted no, no no you're 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 gonna love this okay the Rite of Spring, as you know, was written by a man named Igor Stravinsky. And he wrote it for a ballet that was supposed to represent primitive life. Okay. 
Do you know what the primitive life was in the original ballet? I do not. A tribal dance ceremony in which a young girl dances herself to death. We can't escape the red shoes. Wait, really? Really? Yes. That is so cool. (laughs) Freaking connection, man. Making can't escape those red shoes. Initially, uh, by the way, Igor Stravinsky was the only composer still alive during the production of Fantasia. Wow. The only the only composer involved in Fantasia still alive. I mean, there I'm certain there were other living composers, mm-hmm. but out of everybody who had music in Fantasia, he was the only one living with skin in the game. With skin in the game. And he came to tour the studio because he was still alive at the time, and he what he saw the changes that were made. He saw that they were doing dinosaurs, and he loved it. He thought it was fantastic. Aww. Uh, he, he loved that the primitive life was the evolution and dinosaurs and life itself being the primitive life represented with his music. That's kind of cool. Uh, fast forward nine years, however, he changes his mind, calling it uh, terrible and imbecility, going as far as to say that Stokowski did a terrible job with his conducting. What? <laughs> Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. 180. What a bitch. What a bitch. What a he had nothing what a to dick. Do, he had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with the freaking dinosaurs. What is he going to like conduct the orchestra to sound like dinosaurs? Like, hey, make your uh, music more dinosaur-y. Like, what, what does oh, he no, have he, to do with he it? He decided that he hated the dinosaurs. Well, but like freaking the conducting had nothing to do with it. The music is the music. That's fair. That's uh, fair. The dinosaurs made my music worse. <laughs> they had dinosaur in their hearts. And so they played bad. Last but not least, uh, let, let let me tell you a little bit about America's Sweetheart. Your real favorite animator and mine, oh, God. Walt Disney's favorite problem child, Arthur Art Babbitt. I hate this guy. Yes, I've had we, enough don't of we the, all? I've had enough of this guy. It's like that, um, the Always Sunny. You've had enough of this dude. I've had enough of this dude. Mm-hmm. He's, he's speaking to... He's, he's talking to different people now that aren't his boss. Uh-oh. He's talking to a guy named Mr. Bill Littlejohn. What? It was a great name. Yeah. And he's a fellow animator. What? Uh, he's Bill also speaking to a new friend, Mr. Herbert Sorrell. Um, These are great names. He's not... A, he doesn't work for the Disney company, though. He's the president of a local association growing in immense power known as the Screen Cartoonists Guild. They have, in recent years, something to the tune of 1941, unionized Max Fleischer Studios, Screen Gems, MGM, and even Warner Brothers, many of which were powerful rivals to the Disney studio. Whoa. Uh, Disney, at this time, is the last remaining holdout, because, as old Uncle Walt says, their animators are already represented by a union. Mm. The Federation of Screen Cartoonists, it's all very official. Is it, uh, though? Yeah, it's a union that only represents Disney animators. Because <laughs> it's a union that he created. <laughs> oh, no. That's like... Because that's the purpose of a union, right? To be right, operated, yeah. owned and operated by your employer. Well, he doesn't operate it. He has to have somebody run it for him. That is on his payroll. That is on his payroll. But do you know who <laughs> the president of the union is? Who is the president of the union? Art Babbitt. Oh, you mother babbit. He 
has been yelling at the boss. He, the president of the union, has been yelling at the boss to raise people's wages. And he's been ignored. And so now he's talking to he's talking to Herbert Sorrell. And you can tell you can tell how that's been going. Yeah. Uh, what about what about medium sized John? Medium sized John is just another you know, animator who is getting fed up because like he's, he's a guy that's sort of like on Walt's side, but he's also a guy that's saying enough is enough. It's time we get a real union going. Yeah. What do you so, mean? It's not a real union. It has a name, doesn't it? What the, uh, the, the Federation of screen cartoonists. Yeah. That sounds official. Yeah. It sounds official, but you know, how prestigious can it be? Art Babbitt's the president. You know what? Fair. Proceed. Uh, that's it. It's, it's just an update on the climate. You know, we're, oh. we're getting, we're reaching the tipping point very soon. We're on um, the journey. We haven't reached the, the destination yet. Almost there. And then I'm going to shut about, shut up about Art Babbitt forever. But here's the facts laid out. Child bride, equal pay, union president appealing to a better union. Will Yay. we see the redemption of Art Babbitt? Tune in next time, folks. <laughs> Tune in next week. Um, speaking of Child Bride, um, I was looking, and I think Marge was one of the body references for one of the dancers, or for the, I think for the lead dancer in uh, Dance of the Hours. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw that in, I, I think it's either the ostrich or the prima ballerina in, I think it might have been the prima ballerina, the hippo. Interesting. Interesting. Because I, I knew she was so super graceful, and mm-hmm. I was pretty sure that Marge was a, a reference in the in the fairies, but I yeah. couldn't be certain. And in the, um, I think the prima ballerina had two references. It was Marge, and then it was somebody else, and then the reference for the lead alligator was the other female references uh, husband. Oh, that's nice. So, like, the prima ballerina and the, the lead alligator that are kind of having a, like, either a predator-prey relationship or a lover's re- relationship, or likely both, um, are actually married. You know, and like it's, 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 the, it's the thing that dare not speak its name. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to speak its name. You know. As a joke. You know. I already, okay. Yeah, I already made a Griffin McElroy reference, so people already know what it is. Yeah. Well, those who know. Those who know, know. Those who don't, don't find out. Don't find out. Um, well, he is a carnivore. Stop. <laughs> uh, I said it, but I didn't say it. Okay. I was um, I was looking wistfully at my notes for the next section, and then you said it, and I immediately snapped back. What's this section? Um, our opinion. Oh, yeah, that exists. We did kind of, like, dive deep into that early in the beginning. Yeah. And I can tell, like, your opinion is not particularly favorable. Yeah. But I'm on the opposite end because my per- my opinion is particularly favorable oh. to Fantasia. I think, uh, first of all, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you, do you want me to give my opinion stuff first? Sure. All right, because I'm going to give you my OOC, my observation, opinion, and crackpot theory. Okay. First observation, uh, in the very beginning, when the band is tuning up, 
you get a little sample of each of the songs to come. Just like, you know, you might hear in a real concert. Yeah. However, uh, both this and the conducting of Stokowski are staged. He's going through the motions uh, for certain bits, and it's it's just sort of like to give you an idea of this is what it sounds like when the band tunes up, but this is also what you're in for. And Stokowski, he's not conducting live. They didn't film that. They couldn't film that because, you know, he's going to get way too into it. But they said, okay, go through the motions, and then they filmed him. And it, they put it together, and movie magic, it looks great. It looks mwah. Just little observation. Is that? Oh, that's an observation. Okay. My opinion. I think that Fantasia is the most ambitious, unique, and iconic film Disney has ever done. I think it took the boundaries that it found in Pinocchio and pushed them all the way to the moon. Uh, I think that because it refused to be bound to a single narrative, or any narrative in some cases, it was able to push those boundaries quite as far as it did. Uh, And as much as we rip on the, the Rite of Spring as much as we can rip on it, it specifically in the name of science and progression of scientific understanding tackled what was even then a controversial topic, evolution, and it displayed it dead seriously. It said, like, you weren't, maybe some people weren't entertained by it, but it had the nerve to say, this is how it happened and this is what happened. This is evolution. And initially... Uh, the Rite of Spring was going to go from the fire stage to early human civilization. And that was heavily protested by creationists. So it was reduced to just the dinosaurs. But even that was still, like, pissing people off. I think it's something that anyone can watch, you know, of any age. I think you can you can put it on in the background. You can put it on and seriously dig into it and analyze it. You can put on just any one segment. You can you can put it in an art museum. You can put this in the Criterion Collection. You can put this in the Disney Vault and take it back out. I I think it goes in all fields. And my favorite segment was either the Dance of the Hours because you know, it's a beautiful representation of the music, and I think it was a very interesting use of unconventional and ungraceful animals in graceful motions and poses. Without really making fun of them, which I really liked. Right, exactly. I I really thought, like, they were going to make super complete jokes all the way through, but it was 100% played deadpan when the... Uh, I mean, sure, there's the occasional gag, like elephant getting stuck in a bubble, the, the the couch bowing under the weight of the hippo, but her weight is never treated as a problem to her fellow dancers, aside from the crocodile, who gets over that problem completely quickly. It's never treated as a problem with the elephants, it's never, the gangliness of the ostriches is never treated as awkwardness. And then, of course, my other favorite segment could be Night on Bald Mountain, minus Ave Maria. Because it's Night on Bald Mountain! Only the evil. Only the evil. None of the divine, only the evil. Oh, God, yeah. I am big into the big evil. Like, it looks so cool. Well, yeah, because there's all, like, the ghosts flying around and, like, the witches and they're... You get titties! It's so cool. 
<laughs> you get to see titties in that segment. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's the only reason why you... That's why I'm into it. Specifically Chernabog's. You get to see Chernabog's titties. Um, Connor, yeah. cut it out. Cut it out. Um, well, maybe if you want. I don't know. Um, we need to also accentuate Nate's foot and mouth syndrome. Chronic foot and mouth syndrome. Chronic foot and mouth syndrome. Chronic I... toes in mouth Stop syndrome. right there. <laughs> I'm going to uh, kick your butt. Uh, toes. Um, okay, so. Crackpot theory time? Yes. All right, and this is going to, I'm going to start it off, and you're going to think I'm absolutely insane. I already do, but go on. A time code 48 minutes and 7 seconds during the Rite of Spring. I saw what looked to be the basic shape of Pride Rock. The general look of the later bit of the Pastoral Symphony looked to me stylistically similar to Hercules. The color choices for the flower song... Uh, during uh, the, um, you know, the Russian dance segment were Mm -hmm. strikingly similar to the color choices for the flowers in Alice in Wonderland. The color choices for fire and the shape choices for demons in the Night on Bald Mountain drew a striking similarity to Sleeping Beauty and their decisions for the green fire and the, the, the general, like, curvature of the dragon... Essentially, the longer I look at it and the longer I think about Fantasia, it seems to have laid the groundwork and inspiration for the company's decisions and the company's work for decades. And I think my crackpot theory is that whenever animators are working on any project for Disney, the first thing they do is they go back and look in Fantasia. Huh. That's why, like, it doesn't... I'm not saying that Pride Rock is covered up by lava in the Rite of Spring. But what I'm saying is you can see a rock that is resting on another giant rock that looks like it's jutting out in a similar configuration that you can say, okay, we need a place for a dramatic lion to hang out. Right there. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, Mary Blair, while working on... um, while working on Alice in Wonderland wasn't like deeply in her own style, but I am saying that it may have been very much influenced by Fantasia since I think to the moon of it. Hmm. I, I think I like that. I think it's also animators will usually draw things the same way or similar things and Alice in Wonderland, specific, like Alice in Wonderland, for instance, doesn't happen too long after Fantasia. That being said, I do really like that. And I think that Fantasia, it's not a theory. It's a fact that Fantasia has been a huge inspiration for Disney's, the future of Disney. Um, and so I think that while maybe it's not the animators specifically go back and watch Fantasia, maybe it's that they're familiar with the way that Fantasia, that the animators that worked on Fantasia have done things in the past. You know? Like, maybe it's not consciously, let's, we're out of ideas, let's go back and look at Fantasia. It's maybe more like the, the elements of Fantasia were in use afterwards. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know? 
like like the animation styles for other cartoons. I'm trying to think of like you know how Cartoon Network it's like one show has a certain style and then suddenly a bunch of other shows have that same style. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the cow you know? art style. Yeah, like similar. Where it's like a <laughs> I trend. say derisively because like you know like the people people say the cow art style when they're talking about like Gumball and Steven Universe and Star and I'm yeah. like it, people like people like simple shapes you know yeah. sorry that we figured that out all at the same time. Well, I think this it doesn't deserve to be a crackpot theory because I think it is an like a legitimate theory. Um. Hmm. And so I would instead like to turn attention back to a crack, like a crackpot theory is that that is Pride Rock and that is actual Zeus. And that is, those are the flowers in Alice in Wonderland. Like the crackpot theory of the fish in Fantasia is the grandmother of Jessica Rabbit. That's a crackpot theory. Yeah. I will say this was originally my observation, um, but I... On rereading it, I realized that claiming to have seen the design of Pride Rock sounds kind of crackpot yeah. AF. Maybe it's more opinion. Yeah, that's. It could be. It could be in a. It's somewhere between th- legitimate theory and opinion. Because as a legitimate theory, it's wholly dependent on my opinion that uh, Fantasia is completely golden. I don't know. I I I love music. Clearly, I love music. I sing and I play instruments and all that. And as a whole, like, I I do really like Fantasia, just as a whole. That being said, as a watchable product, it's hard to get through. It's one of those films that you watch and then afterwards, like a few weeks after or years after, you say, oh, I love Fantasia. Yes, it's such a, an awesome thing to watch because you're remembering the good elements. You're not remembering the long stretches of boring parts. You're not remembering the Ave Maria. Um, mm. Like, I completely forgot that even happened. I thought it was just Night on Bald Mountain. You know, I completely forgot about the Rite of Spring. I totally, I, I just forgot that happens in the first place. Like, there's a lot of boring parts in it. And, there is, of course, the argument that, you know what, that's because it was made in the 40s, and so people here, you know, people in today's world have different attention spans than people da 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 Well, okay, I asked my mom, who was born in 1952, uh, and she grew up watching early Disney movies, I asked her what she thought of Fantasia, if she likes Fantasia, because her... My grandfather, her father, used to always listen to classical music when he would get home from a shift. He was a firefighter. And, like, her family really liked classical music. They were kind of middle class, but they really liked, they really liked classical music. Um, and I asked her about Fantasia, and she said, growing up, she always hated it because it was so long. And there were so many long, boring elements. So that's something to consider. Um, and that's why I said just you t- you know go on YouTube and look at the clips of the good parts because you can appreciate the good parts and respect the impact of it while also admitting hey there's a lot of boring stuff in here um, and so I mean it was 
It was revolutionary. I mean, as you said, this is something that they've never attempted before, and it's probably the most ambitious and unique thing that they have produced to date, you know, besides probably some other passion projects that we're forgetting about. Um, But the first attempt at something is always going to have some flaws. I mean, any attempt at something is going to have some flaws, and that is Fantasia's flaw. If they were to condense it and to, um, you know, maybe add more about the music or, I don't know, if they were to condense it a little bit and maybe make the Rite of Spring not 22 minutes long, then it would be better. You, so but, you're looking for a shorter, sweeter Fantasia. Well, y- like a yes, like the, you understand like the concept with what we with what we were given. Yes, I wouldn't mind it being two hours long if there were more shorts, or if there was a greater variety of music. Like when we get into Fantasia 2000, there's Rhapsody in Blue, and there's like all the other Firebird. There's like a bunch of different types of music. Then you can afford to do a two-hour-long flick. But with what we're given right now, only like seven or six, uh, really only like six pieces of music, then that is just, two hours is so long for like six pieces of music. Okay. You know? So would it be safe for me to assume that this is not uh, taking your number one spot on the list? Regrettably, it is not regrettably which it makes me sad it breaks my heart because i remember fantasia as being awesome but i'm really only remembering the exciting parts right like you say you're remembering it fondly you're you're looking at it with your nostalgia glasses on yes because it it there's a lot there's a lot of boring parts and there's a lot of parts that i like but there are no moments that i'm like holy crap what the heck like it is in pinocchio or Pinocchio, yeah. there's parts that I like, parts that I don't care for, and then there's the, oh my gosh, this is crazy. What am I, like, did somebody slip something in my drink? Am I really seeing this? This is a kid's movie. What is going on? Fantasia doesn't but really how, have that as much. But how would you compare it, to, say, to Snow White? I think it has the same amount of plot as Snow White does. <laughs> um... <laughs> And I, but I think it has a greater variety of things than Snow White does. And I think the reason that Fantasia has a reason for not having much plot to it. It's because they're trying to do a lot of things. And plot, unfortunately, has to be one of the things that's, that is left out. And you don't really miss it because it's music and it's exciting, you know. Um, but... Snow White, there's really nothing to focus on but plot or lack thereof. So you really notice the gaps. It's fair. It's fair. It's valid. Yeah. So would you like me to rank them? I would love you to rank them. Okay. So I think number three is still Snow White. Sorry, Snow. Yes. Keep willow willow wishing. Uh, number two is... Mm-hmm. Fantasia. I like it, and I really like the music, but I just... I, I fell asleep twice during it. Um, and number twice, one... Twice, you say? 
twice. Number one is Pinocchio. Number one, Pinocchio. Pinocchio. What about you? I'm sure I could guess. But. You, I'm sure you could guess as well. All right. I'm going to say, for me, number three is Snow White. Mm-hmm. Daring and ambitious, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately fails the test of time as it is constantly surpassed by its uh, youngers. Number two, Pinocchio. Because what if Snow White, but like we did it good? <laughs> like what if we did it so much better? What if we had characters in it? And number one, Fantasia. Because... Hey, what if we condensed an entire concert into an entire art museum and made it move? Is what if we just lost lost our freaking minds? What if we just like went ham? What if what if we go crazy? What if we go stupid? What if we just go stupid? What if we just what if we go dopey? Oh no. We're going to put all the best stuff in. (laughs) This movie has everything. (laughs) Sexy fish. A himbo dopey. (laughs) Racist depictions that get cut out. Racist depictions that get left in. (laughs) Fred Moore. Fred Moore. He's that thing where he like draws a bunch of naked ladies and gets drunk. There's naked ladies with nipples. There's naked ladies without nipples. Oh Tiny gosh. flying babies, dinosaurs. Oh my man, dinosaurs. Ugh, it's there's Ugh. just so much. And I'm I'm so glad that now that we're done with like the heavy stuff, we can move on to Bambi. We can just move on to the nice. Hold on. I'm getting a message. I'm getting a I'm getting a telegram, Abby. Are you is is the red phone ringing? The red phone is uh the, oh my god I've Are got you a, I've a, got a, ma- a Morse code I've got a carrier pigeon it's brought me a little note and it's clutched in its beak uh oh is it from Snow uh, White <laughs> no it's from Uncle Walt uh oh he's telling me that he's telling me that we can't do an episode on Bambi yet what does he know he's cryogenically frozen he has to hold a pen in his mouth in order to write you a right a he's note. just a severed hand under the Matterhorn. Yeah. But apparently, uh, the Walt Disney Company is in financial ruin right now. Uh-oh. Yeah, like, apparently, uh, Pinocchio was a, uh, flop at the box office, barely made back its budget, and Fantasia, because of the expense of having to install it in theaters, they could only show it in 13 different cities. So, which made it a great exclusive event, but it made back, like, none of its budget. So they're in dire straits. And something as ambitious as Bambi, which he's already scrapped twice by now, has to be put on hold. What? And it's the war. It's the Great War. Just kidding, it's it's World War II. Yeah, yeah. It's on the horizon. We're getting there. But we're in the middle of a a whole different war. Uh Uh-oh. We're in the middle of a war for money. That's all wars, though. That's okay. Every settle war. down. I That's every war. This. Okay. As soon as I said it, I knew it. But <laughs> this, this is this one's different, fellas. This... <laughs> Look, get this. This one is for profit. Oh, I'm twirling my mustache as we speak. Oh ho ho ho! All right. Anyway, um. So, 
how how are they going to make how are they going to make back all this money and save the studio, Abby? I don't know. I'm only a woman in the 1940s, so I have no say. Well, you sassy broad, I'll go ahead and tell you then. I'm a man and I know things. Mm-hmm. They're going to make a movie, a whole feature-length film, and they're going to use every shortcut. They're going to use every trick in the book. They're going to they're going to take a, a a popular but dying property, and they're going to make a whole ass movie out of it. It's going to be round for how many corners they cut. Mm-hmm. And we hope you stick around for the next episode of Dissecting the Dumbo. Oh. But no, that would be Dissecting the Elephant. <laughs> that, there's too much to dissect. The it's, moral it's of the story is... Dissecting the Elephant in the Room. Dissecting the Mouse would like to acknowledge the art provided on commission by Eric, Morgan, and Silas, as well as the editing done on commission by Connor, and of course, the research done by Abby and Nate. Links to the business information for all involved artists are provided in the expanded credits, as well as a bibliography of relevant sources. Nate would also like to extend his personal thanks to his library co-workers. Dissecting the Mouse is intended as a review based on subjective opinion, and is not intended to be a scholarly source. Thank you for listening. <laughs>